Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and welcome to the show. My guest this week is writer-director Robert Boudreau, a filmmaker whose credits include That Beautiful Somewhere, Banksters, and the 2009 short film The Deaths of Chet Baker. His new feature, Born to be Blue, examines the jazz legend from a different direction, casting Ethan Hawke as the trumpeter at what might have been the lowest point in his life. The film opens in Toronto this Friday, March 11th, at the Tiff Bell Lightbox, and expands across Canada in the coming weeks. In the U.S., it'll be in theaters on March 25th, and available on demand March 31st. Robert chose a knockout, Raging Bull, Martin Scorsese's 1980 biopic starring Robert De Niro as Jake LaMotta, a champion boxer whose athletic ferocity and domestic volatility are, at least in Scorsese's vision, inextricably linked, wrapped up in an angry box of Catholicism, insecurity, and ego. De Niro won his second acting Oscar for his unforgettable performance, and Thelma Schoonmacher took Best Film Editing. And while they didn't win their respective categories, Scorsese, Joe Pesci, Kathy Moriarty, and cinematographer Michael Chapman were just as deserving. This is a film for the ages, and as Robert will tell you, there are some very good reasons for that. This is someone else's movie. Often my original impulse is to think of something recent. Mm-hmm. Uh, like from the last couple of years, what's... Um, something that really struck me but I think um, for this I was just really thinking about a film that was kind of like really deeply meaningful to me and and something that maybe also kind of influenced my latest film Born to be Blue and this was a film Raging Bull that Ethan and I talked a lot about and looked to even though they're very different movies but there's some similarities and so I thought it would be appropriate to pick Raging Bull yeah I've I've, I mean I've seen it a number of times theatrically I was showing you I was showing you the Criterion Laserdisc before uh, we started this uh, DVD. Every time it's released, I go back to it and, and just watch it again last week. And what amazed me this time around was that it wasn't the film that I remembered. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's fluid in a way that a lot of Scorsese's films aren't. And that this time it seemed really clearly a movie about frustration. Like, it's a really Catholic film. Mm-hmm. But the nature of its Catholicism was different this time around and I'm just trying to figure out if that was me being like 47 and, and yeah. older and not necessarily wiser but just more attuned to that frequency of it this time or if it's always had that same hook and I just never noticed it I mean I'm, I'm sure it has the movies don't change yeah. but for you what was the the attraction? well I think I mean one of the things I love about it is even though it's a period film you know set in the 40s and 50s it's it's really timeless and I think you know, obviously the black and white kind of adds to that to a certain degree. But I think for me, like I, I first saw the movie when I was maybe 13 or 14. Okay. And so for me, I've gone back to it and now I'm now 42. And so I've gone back to it over, you know, almost 30 years. And, and like yourself, I see different things at it in different decades of my life. Like I, like I didn't see, you know, the Scorsese's Catholicism so much when I was 13. Yeah. I... I saw this amazing actor, Robert De Niro, who I hadn't really seen before, because I saw that before Taxi Driver, and then okay. I went off on a De Niro-Scorsese binge. Um, and I saw the kind of the violence and the showiness of the boxing just really struck me. Um, but I think over time, because there's a certain 
like poetic, enigmatic, expressionistic kind of quality to the movie. And there's a lot of great understated stuff. And the sound design is so precise that you can keep finding new things. So I've probably seen it 30 or 40 times over the last 30 years. And it keeps, I keep seeing new things and it means different things to me. And that, that's what tells me it's a great movie is that it can just, it just holds up and, and it always means something different. Yeah. I, um, I'm still kind of dazzled by the performance, like by De Niro's, just his absolute disappearance into Jake LaMotta, into the, the way that the film is, it's, you know, it's just so brutally unsympathetic. We understand that he's in pain and that it's mostly self-inflicted, but the idea that in 1980 that it was possible to make a film about a man this unpleasant and make the film as unpleasant uh, four years after Rocky, which, you know, yeah. came from the same studio. The same producers, the yeah. Winkler and Chartok. Yeah. It's remarkable to me that yeah. the film even exists, that that they were smart enough to do both sides of that argument. But, it, mm-hmm. I mean, it is, you know, it's, it's, it's Rocky, and I'm thinking about it now, obviously, because of Creed and the resurgence of, of Stallone and, mm-hmm. and the fact that by the time this podcast drops, he may have won an Oscar for playing Rocky yeah. Balboa, which he didn't do in 76 which is still kind of bizarre yeah. uh, but of course De Niro was nominated for Taxi Driver like it's yeah. such a bizarre echo that this film should we should be talking about it now in relation to Rocky in relation to the fact that there's a seventh Rocky movie now and it's back yeah. in the world um, there will not be yeah. like there is apparently a sequel to Raging Bull or someone bought the rights to there's a big lawsuit second. about that yeah. yeah the Bronx Bull is I think yeah. what they ended up titling it with yeah. William Forsythe and I don't see time coming back around in to the franchise or I don't see a Raging Bull franchise happening quite the same way the Rocky no, films did no that's such a standalone I think kind of performance and a cap kind of time capsule thing I think you know I think that one of the other things that I think is so magical about that movie is that it, you can tell it's deeply personal for both for Scorsese and for De Niro I mean De Niro was trying to talk Scorsese into doing it for many 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 years mm. and and Scorsese did it at a time and at a dark time in his life when he was sick and he was exploring himself and you can really feel both De Niro's personal need to do the movie and Scorsese's and I think those are for whatever reason those kinds of movies tend to be the ones even a a film like Vertigo which is one of Hitchcock's most personal movies it's interesting how those movies are the ones that really stand the test of time even though they're not like overtly personal like it's not about Scorsese's life in Little Italy or growing up in New York or something but but you can really tell it's it's, oh, yeah. it's 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 and it's the yeah the whole catholic thing which the the more i watch the more i see of that um yeah i mean i was i was raised you know conservative jewish um and really don't practice or follow any of it yeah but the the catholicism of raging bull is the catholicism that i kind of worry about yeah when people talk about growing up heavily religious it's like oh yeah, yeah that'll destroy it. that'll that'll ruin you yeah uh, because what you see in the film is someone who can only i mean ebert summed it up beautifully who was a catholic himself as you say it's a film about a man who can only relate to women as as virgins or whores and the minute they're no longer virgins he can't relate to them at all yeah like, um his lamada's relationship with with his wife is framed through such loathing uh and jealousy and this this weird kind of 
whirlpool pathology that he creates for himself where mm-hmm. he's really in in every scene where he's not fighting someone he's waiting to fight with someone um, <laughs> and the frustration that comes out in him when he doesn't get to fight in the ring invariably it attacks his brother or it attacks his wife and i i see it almost as a separate entity i, I don't even think yeah. that it's him because he's so completely unconscious of his own or not unconscious but he's so completely unaware of his own motivations he really doesn't know what makes him tick yeah and so lamada becomes this fascinating figure of pure anger but he's not smart enough to be stopped like you can't talk him down because he'll just hear the word he wants to hear and go on and fasten on that like the idea why you say you why did you say and you when you say these guys names why'd you put your name in there why would you do that it's like well because i was trying to tell you that a lot of people exist in the world yeah but you said you well okay i see where this is going i get just there's no there's never a good end to anything that happens with him And, and the movie is this progressive descent until we finally see what happens when he directs his rage at himself when, when there's yeah. literally nothing else to hit yeah. and it's um, it's so compelling but it's so ugly and unpleasant and 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 willing to show you that and I always like, I weirdly associate that with the, the Catholic images of, of the crucified Christ because they're always there's always blood there's always so much of the actual viscera I and mean, the idea of people sticking their hands in his side and disbelievers and mm-hmm. and everything else and a lot of the other um a lot of the other christian religions or the the offshoots of christianity tend to to sanitize it or whitewash it and, and just mm-hmm. sort of back away from it but scorsese you know if you've seen last temptation you know yeah, he'll, yeah. he'll show you everything that he can yeah, show yeah, you yeah. and here it's like a trial run for that but it's all mixed up with this post cocaine rage confusion i mean he just made four movies back to back i think uh or five if you count the last waltz you know like alice and or right. mean streets and alice and and taxi driver and the last waltz new york, in new york, york. New york and yeah. they almost cumulatively killed him yeah and so i mean the story goes i don't know if it's true or not but i kind of want to believe it that de niro went to see him in the hospital and mm. said now we make raging bull yeah, yeah um as though it was the project that would save him when a movie of this intensity would probably kill anybody else. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's also the kind of cathartic nature of the whole Catholic thing with Scorsese, because, you know, the climax of the film is literally De Niro, like, in a Christ-like position on the ropes, bloody. Like, yeah. um, And it kind of builds towards that. And, and you know, in some ways, what did Scor- you know, Scorsese kind of followed it up with the King of Comedy and some kind of lighter... Well, I mean, still dark comedies in the grand scheme of things, but a different type of filmmaking for him. And mm-hmm. in some ways, it, I almost see that as him kind of redeeming himself for getting that maybe out of his system or something. Like, I think, um, well, this never like mind the fact that it was hugely, it wasn't, I don't think, successful box office wise, but critically, it was. Oh, yeah, critically. It, it was, was very well received, obviously. And premiere named it the movie of the 80s, if I remember yeah, correctly. Yeah, a lot of people did. Yeah. Um, and so. Uh, it does seem like a summation in a lot of ways of Scorsese's early period. Because you're right, he gets immediately calmer. His films get more relaxed. Well, he also, you get the sense that he he basically, in terms of that all, all the different techniques, he, he like almost everything is in Raging Bull. Like, you know, the use of off-speed, which is, he uses it all the time. The use of zoom, the use of like, every trick in the book he pulls out and makes work in that. And if you look at Taxi Driver and all those films, thinking that... He's experimenting with them, but in Raging Bullets, like he's mastered them all and put them all together in one big. And, and and then yeah, you're right. After that, his things are a little bit more straight ahead. And then I feel like in 1990, ten years later, he did Goodfellas, right? 
with again with Pesci and De Niro, and he came up with this new style, which is which led us to where he even is now in a sense. Like that that was more of a style informed by commercials and music videos a little bit there was a there was a snappier quality to that style and that was like a different phase yeah. between 1980 and 1990 it was its own kind of strange beast i think but yeah um, he's such a fascinating filmmaker because he goes into the wilderness in these weird ways like he he makes raging bull and blows all of that out and then goes off and does king of comedy and after hours and and last temptation and then he does goodfellas and then he's immediately well, what are you going to do next oh, i'm going to remake cape fear and then i'm going to yeah. do the age of innocence and i'm going to make a slow calm movie that's just furious underneath but i just yeah. and kundun and all these movies that people kind of forget because they want to chase the gangster pictures they want to chase the most vivid scorsese picture because that yeah. that fil- that sense of filmmaking that style thing he does is like a drug like new york stories being i think the yeah. most distilled version of it right right yeah but he's so good when he's observant and calm and quiet and you see that in raging bull as well you see that in the just oh, big in, time. in the the you know the 10 or 15 minutes between explosions mm-hmm. where you're just watching it build and it's almost calm and it's almost safe like the home movie footage and the, mm-hmm. the scene, just his early flirtations they're they're or the couple's early flirtations they're almost sweet except that we know that there's absolutely no way this ends well and yeah, this yeah. is only gonna no i, I love again. that's one of the things i love about the movie is how he juxtaposes the overly stylized fight sequences with super simple supernaturalistic dramatic scenes which are just so simply staged and i know you know they ended up shooting those scenes very very quickly and the fight scenes took them forever to do and that's where so much of their time never mind the fact that de niro had to do all the weight and and that 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 had its own issues but i love that how he's able to kind of mesh those kind of two styles together so on one hand the film feels so improvised and naturalistic on the other hand it's insanely stylized yeah and he's able to marry that because usually it's one of the trickiest things for uh, as a director is to try to find a tone or at least try to unify your tone and without it becoming a bit of a mess yeah and well, born uh, to be blue has a sort of a yeah. device that that employs that it employs to not disconnect the stories but to demonstrate that part of it is a fiction and part of it is not and mm-hmm. or, i mean it, it's a a dramatic interpretation in any case but when you're when you're sort of shifting between those two modes of storytelling it's it's very similar i think to what to what scorsese does where he ramps right up into pure stylization for the for the fight sequences yeah and then comes back down to earth for these kitchen sink moments which almost yeah. feel like they're pulled out of who's knocking at my door where it's just like all we have are the actors and some walls like cassavetti's film or yeah. something and it's no and that that was one of the tricks in born to be blue is that i wanted to create what i knew was kind of a stylized device to kind of poke fun at at the biopic and and have this film within a film thing which really did happen so to try to kind of capture a bit of that charlie kaufman-esque kind of fun but yet still give the whole film a unified tone and still make sure that it doesn't just feel too much all over the place and and also to try to um connect it to jazz music which is by its nature improvisational so it's like how loose do you let it be and and it's 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 kind of finding that balance and it was one of the things I love about another thing I love about Raging Bull is that you know it is a biopic on Jake LaMotta but you never know it it doesn't it feels just like a story and it doesn't even though it's got like it's got the montages of boxing it's got which is kind of classic biopic stuff mm-hmm. but yet I don't even think of it as a biopic in a way it and doesn't. that's what I love that's one of the things I loved about it and I know that they 
I know when when he worked with Paul Schrader and Marduk Martin on the script, you know, they did the usual things where, the, like, the Joe Pesci character was actually a combined two characters. He didn't really exist, and and the whole I, the whole triangle that they set up there between, you know, the hero and then the brother mentor figure and then the woman was kind of for Ethan and I a bit of a model for Born to Be Blue as well because in, in Chet Baker's life, Dick Bach was the manager, and in our film, that's Callum Keith Rennie, and then and then the female love interest. Um, was in our film Carmen Yogo and and, and Raging Bullet was Kathy Moriarty, but mm-hmm. that the the kind of the triangle relationship and how you can kind of use that power was it was kind of inspirational for us. I mean, again, very still a very different movie, but um, yeah. Well, I mean, with I think the the how can I put this? Uh, I would guess that like the popular the audience's imagination of what Chet Baker will be like is kind of weirdly similar to what. How Scorsese and De Niro depict Lamada, which is that he's this kind of uncontrollable, self-destructive force that if you wrap him correctly, if you position him properly, you can direct him into something beautiful, wonderful, usable, memorable. Like Lamada in the Ring was apparently... We don't see it in the film because it's so subjective and we're usually just watching him get punched in the face. But he was apparently the Tyson of his age. Like he just mm, came yeah. out and destroyed anything that was in front of him. Yeah. Uh, and you know now with the with the rise of with the with the popular narrative about Tyson and the and Tobacks documentary and all that stuff that have followed, we sort of see the echoes even more vividly in in Raging Bull of the of the Tyson persona, the, mm. the absolute destructive force that only works when you point him that way. A raw animalistic kind of. Yeah. yeah. But with Baker, you get beauty. Like you get. Un- unvarnished, un like there's nothing that isn't gorgeous about listening to him. Yeah. Um, there's no, like you don't hear the rage, you don't hear the self destruction. The you kind of do with Charlie Parker in a weird way, mm. I think, in the same like yeah, in terms yeah. of the era. But uh, I don't know enough about jazz to go in any further on that. Point. Yeah, but yeah. I find it really fascinating that the, that you can even begin to draw the parallel, and you can you not you but anyone, and it, yeah, yeah. it can be done. Well, I I think the thing with the thing that fascinates me about Chet Baker is is that you know that there there always is a darkness under the surface of those beautiful love songs that he he always played a little a little flat a little off like there was there's always kind of something brooding there and that that's kind of where the conflict comes in with Jake LaMotta it's more on the surface like um it becomes very apparent because he's just cursing and punching people in it and and so it's much less subtle in that sense um he's a guy who doesn't go inside himself very much no. I don't think Lamada has an inside. No, no. Um, but there is there's a certain darkness and a certain self-destructiveness that I think they share, and I think a lot of heroin addicts share. Um, and a certain, you know, one of the other interesting things about Raging Bull is just how it treats sex and how it, and, you know, the mix of sex and violence and, and then back to the religion again mm-hmm. and the intersection of those themes. Oh, yeah. um, and it's, you know, the whole idea of sex isn't something that, we really explored too much in in Born to Be Blue, partly just because I wanted to focus on certain things. But in Raging Bull, it's just very interesting, and it goes back to what you were talking about about the kind of the virgin personification of the female, and and that's again that's kind of a, a very Hitchcockian thing too. Like even in Taxi Driver, um, you know, the De Niro character falls for. Um, I'm forgetting her name now. Um, Sybil Shepherd, who is kind of a classic Hitchcockian blonde, now, not as not like a virgin like Catherine Moriarty is in Raging Bull, but, you know, I, I remember the last time I watched Raging Bull, one of the shots that 
that always sticks out to me is the, some of the first shots of her at the pool in slow motion with the white dress, kind of flapping her legs and De Niro just watching her. It's like he's seen an angel come. Yeah. And coming off of this terrible relationship with his wife, he's like found this virgin angel. And then as soon as he marries her and, and they get together, you know, things kind of turn, like you said, quite quickly. And, and, um, and the film just, I mean, I, I think it spends maybe two minutes on the, any concept of domestic happiness. It's, it's yeah. in the home movies yeah. where everybody's smiling. Yeah. And um, then it's over. Like, it's just instantly gone. Yeah. But, I mean, the reality is, is that that happiness isn't all that interesting within the context of a movie like that anyways. And sure. so Scorsese's just looking for the conflict and the darkness. And, and I think... Um, it is. I mean, I think it's just such a brave film in that sense. Like, I think a lot of people since Raging Bull always look to that to say, oh, look, I can get away with an unsympathetic character. Usually what happens is they create an unsympathetic character and it doesn't work and people hate the character and the film doesn't work often. Because yeah. uh, it's very, very tricky to get away with such a blatantly unsympathetic character and make your movie work. Like, it's very, very bold. Most people cannot pull that off. And yeah. I just, whatever I watch, I think, how do they get away with that? And and But it's just it's just because it's so captivating. And when you see De Niro doing that stuff, you you know people like that. You know, like I, I grew up being a jock, an athlete. I played sports all my life, and you and you kind of see. And, and I also grew up, um, you know, you know, in a small town, Ingersoll, which is um, a couple hours from here, kind of an industrial town. And when I, you kind of see the, there's a certain darkness that De Niro had that I remember seeing in the factories and stuff, it, like the blue collar kind of frustration and darkness that you see combined with some of the sports mentality, and that's what I think sticks with me about Raging Bull too is that it's so truthful and universal like that darkness it's not just it's not just theatrics he's being an asshole like it, it it's so kind of real and naturalistic and that that speaks to the how much preparation they put into it too like I mean I think you know reading about Raging Bull and the amount of time that De Niro spent working with Pesci and Kathy Moriarty Pesci and Mo- Moriarti both were uh, non-actors really like and the yeah, fact that she and Frank Vincent had made some B movie that, yeah, that he noticed she, and the, she was some girl that he knew on the street and like the fact that Scorsese had two of his leads and never even acted before and then and they were so amazing like Pesci should have got the Oscar for that I mean he he's just so brilliant in that movie yeah um, again it's just it's so bold and so good yeah it's um, it's amazing to watch those scenes now and realize that you know not only uh, did did the actors kind of have to figure out where they were but uh, th- there's also the there's also the whole I, and we mentioned this but, but there's also the whole thing about Rocky hanging over their heads it's like you know can, can it be nicer can it be better than, than I and no one goes there like nobody drifts towards it no one drifts towards sympathy Pesci never blinks Moriarty is kind of icy from the beginning as though she knows it's not going to end well, or at least she's practiced. And it's one of those things where she was 18 when they started shooting. It's like unimaginable to me that uh, she gives a performance that's composed and as, as stable as that in this whirlwind of a movie. Yeah. Um, and De Niro just doesn't. like. Th- there's, a, there's a movie called The Iceman with Michael Shannon and Winona Ryder. Franco's in it. It's got a, this huge cast, but it, the entire movie comes down to Michael Shannon not giving an inch just being a complete brick to everybody around him because he's a sociopath and he's murdered by the end of the film he'll 
say he's murdered dozens of people may or may not be true. The movie takes his confessions, the character's confessions as true. And Shannon just does this amazing thing about not giving anything back to an actor in a scene. Just absolutely nothing. And <laughs> De Niro, I, I thought about that watching Raging Bull this time because it's incredible to watch him not listening to people, but still be involved. Yeah. Like, you can tell that De Niro is working with the actors even as his Lamada is completely ignoring them. Yeah. It's just fascinating. I just it's it's this thing that doesn't happen and it happens. Yeah. And even even in the scene at the very end when he's he was he's reciting the speech from on the waterfront, which should have so much meaning and which does have so much meaning, he is showing us somehow that he as an actor understands that Lamada doesn't understand it. Yeah, uh, and the movie can show us that, and the levels of observation in the film are just so incredible yeah. and, and complex to me that I just I think that's why I see something different every time because this time it's just like well what angle am I what angle am I being directed to what am mm. I sh- what am I being shown? Mm-hmm. Well, I think yeah, and I think some of the nuance in the repetition and the dialogue scenes between De Niro and Pesci, like you know, you can tell that they've. Like they feel so spontaneous and naturalistic, but you know that they've clearly worked them and worked them to kind of get to that point. For me as a director, you know, yeah, yeah. after I've seen it so many times, I start looking beyond that and looking at the technique of it all. And and it, it's something that strikes me the more I see it is just the use of repetition. Like a lot of the scenes, De Niro will ask Pesci the same thing like five times and Pesci will repeat the same thing four times because that's people talk in a very messy way yeah. and a lot of the scenes like even the first scene when he meets Kathy Moriarty it's it's just like grunts and half audible haze and and just this very simplistic naturalistic dialogue and to me that that's what gives it such an authentic thing and I think I, you know I remember reading the original script or one of versions of the script right. I think it was um, Paul Schrader's rewrite um, and you know it, it kind of bears a resemblance to the movie but it, uh, there's so much is different. Like the core is there, but it's funny because that's really not a movie that's um, a plot-driven script kind of film. Like, it, you know, it has its own kind of magical energy, and a lot of the big monologues and soliloquies that were written all got thrown out the window and are replaced by like looks or grunts, which is yeah. often the case. And it's all it needs in this case. Yes, yeah. he's he, he's not a talkative guy. Yeah. I mean, and that's again like like Chet Baker and Born to Be Blue, you know we tried to limit the amount of long speeches Ethan had because Chet Baker did not like to talk. Some of those guys are just not verbal guys. I mean, Ethan actually is an extremely verbal guy. And so I was trying to keep him from not talking so much because his default is to have big dialogue scenes. He, you know, he's done a lot of those kind of movies, which he's done very well. (laughs) Um, but then you yeah. see him in something like Sinister, and it's like he's just watching and reacting, and it's mm. just as interesting. I, I'm, yeah, yeah. I said this when Boyhood came mm. out. I think and it's like nobody noticed, and he turned into the best actor of his generation. I mean, he's just suddenly become yeah. as good as he always was. But now we catch it. Now yeah. we can see it. No, he's. I think. I think there's a lot of actors, and Ethan in particular. They kind of they have another renaissance in their forties, where where I think. Um, their their kind of cumulative experience and 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 maturity kind of come together in a way and they're also confident with themselves and where they're at and i was lucky to kind of have ethan on this project when he was like really right now at it's like i think really at his prime like you say and, and kind of able to do whatever and 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 just be so um so collaborative and 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 passionate about it so yeah it was um 
It was great. Yeah. You said that you and he had conversations that were similar to, or that you used Raging Bull as a as a mm. touchstone. I'm just really curious about if you can expand on that because that just sounds like something. It's a it's a big signifier to have while you're working on something completely different. So how did it come up? I think on a lot of different fronts. Like I think um, I think one of the things that attracted Ethan to Born to Be Blue was the fact that it wasn't a traditional biopic and. When we, we talked about how to approach a person's life and the inherent fictions in a lot of traditional biopics. Um, and Raging Bull was a movie that kept coming up partly because it was period, because it did have a black and white aesthetic, but because it was a biopic done in, in a kind of a naturalistic way and, and the, the kind of the merging again of the, of the stylization and the naturalism, right. I think, from Raging Bull. And I think also how to how to deal with dark characters. I mean, in that case, they didn't worry about Jake LaMotta even being sympathetic. In our case, um, you know, we chose a year in Chet Baker's life in the late 60s where he actually had a comeback and it was inherently sympathetic. Right. And so that that was to our advantage because... And I think Ethan Hawke as an actor and as a person isn't like he is just a nice down to earth guy that is who Ethan Hawke is i think robert de niro is a probably a very different person a- every actor is different in sure, their own yeah. ways and so i think with ethan we had a a more sympathetic base to start from already which 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 then allowed us to potentially push into darker areas because we knew that we we wouldn't lose the audience because you know the last thing you want to do of course is lose the audience unless your whole movie is just relentlessly dark like Raging Bull but that was never our model so you know we, we kind of we kind of used it in different ways and I think the way you know Raging Bull is also a very jazzy movie like there's a lot of jazz like there is a lot of jazz Harry James uh, Scorsese's like three four Harry James tracks Harry James is one of Chet Baker's icons um you know Benny Goodman. There's there's a lot of jazz in the movie and the use of, of use of sound design. So that was that wasn't necessarily something Ethan and I spoke about at length, but that was something that was kind of inspiring for us. Yeah, and I think just um, designing the relationships because Ethan and I kind of worked the script quite a bit in the summer leading up to shooting the movie. And I think w- one of the things that Ethan was pushing me to do was to play up the relationship and play up the female lead character in order to kind of provide a different window into Chet Baker and his life. Um, not just focus on, because everyone knows once the comeback story starts that to a certain degree you, you see the arc and you know that he's going to probably improve and he's going to have a final concert. What happens you don't know, but you, that's a kind of an archetypal comeback story. But But the love story is something that can kind of provide a unique window in him. And so he really pushed me to expand that and, and and try to connect that relationship between um the lover or wife figure and the and the kind of brother mentor figure which is in our case the dick bach character right. played by calvin keith rennie so and and we just both i think just love the movie and the poetry of it and so it, it, it just became one of several kind of movies that that we um that we talked about and i i, I even know even like the even the quote at the end of the movie which is a biblical quote i i mean i'm not I'm not particularly religious. I actually did grow up Catholic, but I, I wasn't. Um, I don't think I was that good of a Catholic. Scorsese Catholic. I wasn't. I wasn't that hardcore of a Catholic. Um, but um, there's a quote at the end of Raging Bull, which again speaks to kind of how personal it was for Scorsese. 
but once I was blind and now I could see and I remember Ethan and I just talking about what that meant in the themes and it's it's just nice to have touchstones with an actor to um, to jam about because it also helps create the relationship and a mutual understanding of, of things whether or not you use them sometimes in the movie or not isn't even sometimes important it's just building that trust yeah. um, and the best way to build trust is through content through talking about other things besides just because it gets a bit boring always just talking about your own movie like you get pretty sure. sick of it yeah I can imagine too I mean it, it would be nice to escape like um, stories about Edgar Wright showing his cast movies and movies and movies just off, on their nights off mm-hmm. after um, while shooting Scott Pilgrim here he, or he would take over the blur and have double bills and bring mm-hmm. in like he had his cinematographer here so he brought him on to do a, a couple of his films uh, Dick Pope uh, an evening with Dick Pope or something like that and just it's amazing how much of cinema and television culture that acts as a common language for everybody but there are yeah there's just not enough pieces of pop culture that are admired for being unforgiving uh, as Raging Bull and maybe like mm. also there was a brief vogue I guess it's still around where people just embrace Scarface for the same reasons because it's about a badass yeah. but if you watch Raging Bull and think this is about a badass you kind of miss every point that there is in it um, yeah and so no I get yeah, that's it right like you're communicating not only are you communicating with each other about the film itself but and its aesthetic but also understanding like what it means and sort of agreeing on that yeah. together before you can proceed well I, I think I think to me that like the reason that a film like Raging Bull is so much braver and and ultimately stronger than a Scarface, not that Scarface isn't a great movie, but mm. is that it's um, Scarface is one of those movies that people can see and think, oh, that's cool, that's sexy. Like there's nothing really cool and sexy about Jake LaMotta. Yeah, it's just dark, and and in some ways Scarface is almost just over the top pop culture bad and that people kind of think is cool. I think that's much easier to get away with, and. Um, and that's in some ways that's a much more current sensibility whereas Raging Bull has a like I said like a timeless old fashioned sensibility where he's not there like at no point is De Niro trying to look cool yeah or be cool and it was again that was another thing that Ethan and I talked quite a bit about because Chet Baker was the prince of cool the James Dean of jazz you know he was the epitome of cool um, but it's not cool to actually play cool and 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 so and it's tricky for an actor not to be kind of self-reflective like that and not try to worry about posing and being cool and, and something that we talked quite a bit about, about not worrying about that. Because that, that that's what that's what often makes you cool in the end is if you, if you just don't care about that, sure. right? Um, I have strived to, per- to perfect this and <laughs> never made it work. No. But uh, yeah, and, and there's absolutely no question, like De Niro doesn't care if he comes off well and I think that's sort of the whole point of the characters if yeah. he does come off well they've screwed up like yeah, they, yeah. they haven't got it right if you can actually empathize with him yeah. um, but in the end you get this portrait of somebody who is like absolutely complicit in his misery and his suffering and and spreading it to everybody else in a way that almost is understandable in the standard biopic arc except that they've subverted absolutely everything about it because there's no redemption and there's no self-awareness and there's no there's no release you just you get to watch it turn inwards like you i'm kind of amazed that he didn't just die of a million cancers at the age of 40 because of everything he was bottling up but it's just unthinkable that 
that there's a positive spin that you could put on it. It just it doesn't want one, and it won't apologize for that. No. It's kind of amazing and unforgiving that way. No, I, I think you know in, in the last quarter of the movie when he's given a boxing and he's kind of a fat overweight promoter you've got you've got this tiny acknowledgement of a bit of redemption when he tries to make up with joey his brother Mm -hmm. um but it's so subtle and it never really even goes anywhere you you see them you see him kind of kissing him in the in a very awkward way in the parking lot like almost strangely kissing him and then there's nothing beyond that. There's no happy scene with him and his brother having made up or not. So you get the sense like it, it probably didn't quite work out. Yeah. And and you know you kind of you're left with him at the club, in this in this pathetic kind of place. And you know his, I guess his wife had left at the time. Well, yeah, because he's dating the the burlesque. Yeah, she's, he's got some like young underage girls. And and I but I think the way that Scorsese frames the film. Um, which has become such a common technique and Scorsese himself has used quite a bit of starting kind of at the end and then framing it around is interesting because it it has you know it has a certain effect obviously in this this is a movie about a journey there's no big mystery to this so you know right off the bat where you're kind of going and yeah. they're not apologetic about that but it, it does have an effect at the end of a lot of biopics in particular they end and then there's there's often text about what happens next everyone wants to in this day and age everyone leaves the theater wikipediaing it saying yeah. okay what's going to happen next in Raging Bull you leave that movie first of all Scorsese instead of cutting to like in the 60s Jake LaMotta did this or that he cuts to a biblical quote and he thanks his teacher so there isn't anything like that but you don't really when I finish watching that movie I don't even care to think about what happens to Jake LaMotta after that partly because we feel like it's it's this kind of universal circle, and I think, I think that's another reason why it doesn't almost feel like a biopic to me. Yeah. Well, it gives um, you nothing. Like it gives you no comfort. No. He made up with his brother, and his family eventually recognized that he was an okay guy. No, none of that. It's just, and then you're in the abyss. Like you're left there with him. It's that just that emptiness is there. It's like it's the end of the rapture. You know, like how long do you have to stay here forever? There's no there's no out. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that yeah, it's it feels like a like a purgative for Scorsese. Like this is like I left this here. I'm walking away. This yeah. is as much of this guy as I can handle showing you and now we're done. Yeah. Uh, but it's so just ballsy. It's just incredibly brave. No, to do no that. and I think framing it throughout with this kind of um classical Italian Bologna orchestra music mm-hmm. is also obviously adds to that kind of poetic expressionistic tone to juxtapose that classical music with the boxing imagery but if like the start of the movie is this off-speed foggy black and white classical music thing it clearly sets you up in a kind of thematic poetic world of boxing which people hadn't really seen at the time yeah um, and then it ends again on on that kind of music and those quotes and so it's it's just, the whole thing is just framed which, which I think is amazing like that yeah. like you've had a fever dream and you can get up now you can be yeah. released back into the world yeah yeah. yeah I, can, I wish I'd seen it in a theater in 1980 I was 12 I didn't get the chance but I oh, I would have loved to have seen how an audience would process that have yeah. you seen it in a theater I've seen it in the theater many times well three or four probably but but not in 1980 yeah I caught <laughs> I think, it in the 90s. I think I saw it when I was 12 or 13 at, at, there's a cinema in London called The New Yorker that I used to go to um, The Buddy and uh, I think we saw, I saw it on the big screen the first time there I saw it on, on VHS the first few times but but like any great movie seeing it on the big screen is what really blows you away because you really hear all the sound design and the, and the imagery and um, 
it's something that I, I try to see like on the big screen once every you know three to five years wherever it's around on uh, at a cinematech yeah I it, think it'll like it's got to play repertory forever it's just one of those movies that should never go away no it's it's so timeless yeah uh, and so the final question is always the same that I, is that uh, and we kind of dealt with it really which is what of what of the film have you kept or borrowed or stolen what what of it is in your creative DNA now mm-hmm anything beyond what we talked about yeah i mean i i think um i i I think the what i've tried to take from it and what i try to learn as a director each time i do a movie is is just how to how to kind of deal with with tone and stylization and merging different types of of styles into something unified and that's one of the things like we spoke about before that i just think is so amazing how blending that naturalistic acting style which i love so much but with with a certain stylization stylization and a certain kind of poetic quality which gives it a higher meaning and trying to just learn from that and take from that to me is is kind of the biggest lesson for raging bull um but i i think it's also the most elusive thing because um that was done in 1980 i can't believe that's that's yeah 35 years ago and a lot of those techniques have have kind of now become kind of overused and so it's also a call to arms and a kind of a challenge to come up with new kind of brave techniques um and approach a story in such a a brave way and and somehow try to get away with it so i don't know if that answers your question i think it kind of does i mean it's it's something to shoot for if nothing else like something to it's an inspiration and and all 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 those great movies that's what they are ultimately is is inspirations um it's the reason that you know that i'm that i do what i do is because of movies like that that inspired me at a young age Mm -hmm. and so it's what probably why you do what you do is because these movies inspire us to to do this and so yeah, absolutely. Because it's, it's the, never that easy of a business to do, and so unless you're inspired, um, you know. Yeah. No, I've, it's have. it's a good way to describe it. I'm sort of chasing the high, you know, like of the next great film, and yeah. then they don't really come any more intoxicating than Raging Bull. Yeah. It's something. My thanks to Robert Boudreaux, whose new film Born to Be Blue opens in Toronto this Friday, March 11th, expanding across Canada in the weeks to come, and opening in the U.S. on March 25th. Thanks also to Carrie Wolf. She knows what she did. Robert's not on Twitter, but you can keep track of Born to be Blue by following New Real Films, all one word, real with an A, and you can find Raging Bull on Blu-ray and DVD from 20th Century Fox Home Entertainment. It's also available for sale or rental on iTunes, but obviously you're going to want the 30th anniversary Blu-ray, which is just packed with extras. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, or on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, well, you know, be as mean as you like, but you'll never get me down. You'll never get me down. Thanks for listening. <laughs>